Every year Christmas seems to come faster and faster, which is slightly frustrating, but I don't know about you, but one of the benefits is every year I see Christmas in a new light. There's a new reflection upon God and his goodness uh, and who he is that I don't think I saw the year before quite as clearly, so I hope that is the same for you as well. Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew 23, and we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 15. Beginning verse 11, the Holy Scriptures read, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin today? Father, we ask that you would again help us to see this text, not with just our physical eyes, but with spiritual eyes. We ask that your spirit would illuminate us, our minds and our hearts, to understand these truths at the core of our being so that it would change our affections to love you more and serve you better. Father, we just pray for this church. We ask that you would help us, strengthen us, empower us to be on mission, to not be like the false teachers that we're about to look at. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When it comes to deciding who humanity's most dangerous leaders are, there is quite a number of contestants. One of the most dangerous leaders in human history was a man named Gaius Julius Caesar, who was the third emperor of Rome. And though you may have heard of his name, you probably have heard of him more and recognize him better by his nickname, which was Caligula. Caligula is a name that means little soldier's boot, and he was named this because he was a barbaric, cruel leader who justified his barbarism with his belief that everyone around him was a corrupt cheat. And not only that, he believed himself to be divine God himself. So you put those two together and you can see quite easily how he did some smiting and wrath. He ended up becoming a terrible drug addict who in his fits of rage was so barbaric that Many people in his time called him a beast with a human face. It's not much of a compliment at all. In fact, historians can't find a single story or citation that refers to him as being a normal human of any kind. He was often described as, I quote, an insane emperor who was self-absorbed, short-tempered, and killed on a whim. And they said this of him because during his four short years as the Roman emperor, he not only forced his political rivals that he didn't like to commit suicide, he was well known for rape, incest, and murdering people in sick and twisted ways, including feeding them to animals. And consequently, because he was such a dangerous leader, he was assassinated then by his own guards. But as dangerous as Caligula was, there's another leader who was even more dangerous who came after him, who ruled the Hunnic Empire from AD 43, 434 to 453. In fact, he was so dangerous, he was nicknamed the Scourge of God. 
After seizing power for himself by killing his older brothers, Attila the Hun went on to expand his empire in Germany, the Balkans, and Russia through a, through a bloody and cruel conquest. His armies would come rolling up, rolling in, we should say, on horseback, like a scourge, screaming with a savage, blood-curdling sound that struck fear into the victims as they were slashed and hacked to death. For example, one attack, uh, which was actually more of an ethnic cleansing than a battle, the Huns killed 20,000 people, which included the women and children. And why? Not because those people posed a threat to him, but because he wanted to send a message, which is, you don't mess with Attila. Attila is barbaric. And consequently, because he was such a dangerous leader, he too was assassinated, legend tells us, by his own wife. But as as dangerous as Attila was, there was another leader that was even more dangerous. For in the 13th century, there's a man named Genghis Khan who was responsible for killing two-thirds of northern China's population. That's two out of every three people. And in his conquest, he was known also for his cruel and twisted barbaric acts most of which I cannot describe with children in the room. But needless to say, um, I'm sure you'll get at what I'm getting at here, one of those barbaric acts resulted in one out of 200 people today being related to him. And consequently, because he too was such a dangerous leader, we are told that he was killed, taken out with a poisonous arrow. Now, we would stop there in our illustrations, but in a list of most dangerous leaders, we cannot exclude the man named Adolf Hitler. He was a man so evil that during his Third Reich, the Nazi killing machine murdered millions, which included six million Jews, which comes out to one out of every three Jews on the planet were killed in his Third Reich reign. And on top of that, another five million non-Jews were killed as well. And consequently, in total, under this dangerous leader's reign, 11 million people's lives were suddenly ripped away from them by the Nazi killing machine. And so he, too, uh, needed to be taken out. And that's why the Allies banded together, as we know, to stop this terrible human leader. And though he was a monstrous leader, uh, he, too, was not the most dangerous human leaders that humanity faces. For the truth is the most dangerous human leaders that we face are not those who merely destroy men's bodies, but as Jesus warns us today, those who destroy men's souls. And consequently, because those types of leaders are so dangerous, in Matthew 23, our passage this morning, Jesus goes to war against them and their dangerous soul-destroying activity. And so if we are going to join Jesus in this war effort, Uh, we too are going to have to go to war against these dangerous leaders, and we do so for three reasons, and here they are. We must go to war against false teachers because one, they conceal, two, they close, and three, they corrupt. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 23. We're going to begin verse 11. I'm going to read verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 reads, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will will be exalted. Let me ask you, what would you think about a coach who never corrects bad practices? What would you think about a teacher who never marks off points for wrong answers on an exam? Or how about this, even worse, a doctor who never diagnoses? I think that's a verb. If it's not, it is now. But what would you think of that? 
pretty crummy coach, pretty awful teacher, pretty deadly doctor, right? Okay, one more. What about a Christian who refuses to call out not only dangerous teaching, but false teachers by name? I'm not just talking about mentioning it briefly, but I'm talking about going after them by name, by organization. Well, I would have to say they too are an ineffective and unhelpful and unloving Christian. And to this, many will say, well, preacher, I just don't think that's a very loving Christian thing to do, to call out people, to call them out by name and by their false teaching. Well, if that's the case, then please explain to me why Jesus is doing just that in Matthew chapter 23. He is. And in fact, not only does he do it here, but we've seen him do it throughout all of Matthew's gospel over and over. And if you read the rest of the Gospels, you find even more of that. And if you read the rest of the New Testament, you find his followers, his apostles, doing just that as well. See, here's the thing. We are called Christians. And what does, a, what does that term mean? It means a little Christ. That's what it means to say, I am a Christian. You are saying, I am a little Christ. I am a Christ follower. My job, my duty then is to imitate Christ. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He's saying, look at me. I am going to imitate Christ, and this will give you a visual example of what you're supposed to do. And let me ask you, did Paul ever call out false teaching and false teachers by name? How about all the time? Like, quite regularly, he did this. He did not just stick to positive preaching. He did not avoid controversies to try to win friends and influence people. And if you've read your Bible at all, you know just how far Paul went. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, have you ever heard of the term super apostles before? Well, it's not a good thing. It's actually a cheeky term that Paul uses to berate false teachers. He's like, oh, okay, look at these super apostles. He just goes in and just drills into them. We find this in numerous other New Testament passages and books of the Bible. We find it in Jude. Jude starts out, I love Jude. He's like, I wanted to write to you about the sweet niceties of our faith, but we can't. There's false teachers who are in, and we got to check these guys. We have to warn against them directly by name, who they are. In fact, these false teachers who were leading God's people into a blatantly embracing of a sinful sexual lifestyle, he calls them clouds without water. That's a funny way to put it. That's a clever way to put it. And he goes on even to go further and say that God is going to one day damn them to hell for their false teaching. The truth is every book bar one in the New Testament warns against false teachers. The only one that doesn't is the book of Philemon, which is one chapter long. The rest of them mention either false teaching or false teachers directly. Now, again, in response to this, I've heard many say, yeah, Zach, but you're not an apostle and you're definitely not Jesus. So who are you to do that? Well, you're right. I'm absolutely not an apostle, and I'm absolutely not Jesus. But I thought we just said a second ago that the term Christian means little Christ, which means we are followers. We are imitators of Christ. Am I not supposed to imitate Christ as a Christian? Of course I am. Because when you think about what Jesus did, I remember something about a whip and tables back in Matthew chapter 21, don't you? Does that seem loving, gentle, and gracious to come in with a whip and go to town on all of the false teachers? No. 
It seems like Jesus responded with some pretty direct righteous indignation to these people on more than one occasion. He called them whitewashed tombs. John the Baptist, his forerunner, referred to them as a brood of vipers. And yet, as little Christ, we are called to imitate him. We are called to follow in his footsteps, which means our job is not simply to be positive, encouraging, K-love Christians. That's part of it, but that's not the whole thing. In response to this, many of our highly respected, I put that in scare quotes for a reason, evangelical leaders will tell you this. They'll say, Zach, you're not Jesus. In anger, you can't handle it, so you need to stop. Just be loving. Just be gracious. Just be tender. Put the anger down because you're going to hurt yourself and somebody else. And in response to that, I say, yeah, definitely, maybe. I definitely could do that. But maybe not. Because if I imitate Christ's anger and attitude towards and against false teachers, the Bible tells me if I do that righteously, with righteous indignation, I'm actually helping people, not harming them. Look, I may have been born at night, but it wasn't last night, okay? And so I realize how dangerous anger is as a human emotion. In fact, the Bible tells us not to put on the anger of man because it's a dangerous and deadly thing. I mean, look at the leaders we just looked at. How did they do with their anger? Really, really poorly. So that, that is definitely a possibility we have to be aware of. But why on earth, church, tell me this, have we Christians deluded ourselves into thinking that love is any more safe of an emotion than anger? It's not, not even close. Do you want a homework assignment for this week? I'm going to give you one anyways. Go home. And and I would encourage you to actually do this. Make a list of sins of anger and sins of love and just think through all the things you battle in your life and put them in one of the two categories. I think you'll be shocked to see how many times the sin that you and I engage in falls into the category of sins of love, not anger. Why do we steal? Not because we're angry. We steal because we love possessions, right? It's an inordinate love. It's a false love. We are loving things of this world, right? Demas, he left Paul because he loved the things of the world, right? Okay, it's an inordinate love. Why do we lie and tell people what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear? Is it because we're so angry and just don't want to tell? No, it's because we love the praise of man not the praise of God. Don't get me wrong. The the sin of anger is a very dangerous thing that wreaks havoc in families, in churches, in our world at large. But do you realize, hear me when I say this, the sin that lies behind the sin of anger? Because that's the question we need to ask as good New Testament Christians is when we sin, say, what's the sin behind the sin? What's the sin behind the sin of anger? It's the sin of love. It's the sin of inordinate loves, for it is a love that pridefully, that pridefully causes us to use our anger in an unchristlike, unloving way. So some of you think you have an anger problem, but you don't. Okay, well, you probably do, but here's the point. When you realize that what you really have as in your anger and your sin of anger, it's a, at the root a prideful, inordinate love problem, which manifests itself in righteous anger, only then can you start to make work on that sin. That's the only way it's going to work. Why do I often respond 
with impatient anger towards my children when they frustrate me? Is it because I'm just so angry at sin and it's, no. It's because they're interfering with the thing that I love most, which is myself. And so then, out of this inordinate love, I respond with unrighteous anger. Why do I sometimes respond as a pastor with impatient anger when a church member sinfully complains, bickers, gossips, gripes, and acts more like a goat than a sheep? Not, sadly, because of my righteous indignation, which is Christ-like, but because their sin is interfering with the thing that I love most, which is me, okay? That's why I do that. And so I am tempted and often sometimes sadly do respond with unrighteous anger, not righteous indignation. And so then wrongful loves are so much greater a threat, so much greater a danger than anger. Don't, hear, don't get me wrong. Anger is dangerous. Don't, don't go to bed with that thing. Deal with it. Get rid of it. Use it. Act upon it. And not in an emotional outburst way, but in a decisive, biblical, Christ-exalting way. As creatures made in the image of God, we are to love what he loves and hate what he hates. And hatred always embraces emotion. You can no more put off the emotion of anger fully in your life than you can put off the emotion of love. The Buddhists will tell you to do that. They'll say, you know what the problem is? You got to stop loving stuff. You got to detach yourself from this world. If you could just detach yourself emotionally, then things would be good, right? We'd be all right. I'm like, good luck. You'd be, have to be in a coma to do that. You cannot do it. And so then we must respond to false teachers with righteous indignation by refuting them and warning others about them. Now, there's one more concern we need to deal with here when it comes to this calling out false teachers, and it comes in the form of a question. All right, we're going to get a little philosophical here, so bear with me. And that question is this, and I've been asked this. Who are you to say who is and isn't a false teacher? Are you really so naive and prideful to think that you have all of your doctrine figured out, Mr. Judgy? Has anybody ever heard this before? All the time. I've heard this all the time as a pastor, even before being a pastor. What do we say to that? Well, the truth is, if we are going to stand for Christ at all and do what he says here, we will say that. And I can promise you that if you are going to do the little Christ thing, you are going to be asked this question. So what do we say? Well, we could give them the philosophical answer, which is, as a Christian, we do not reject the realities of ontological truth and thus embrace epistemological deconstructionism, the hermeneutic of contextualized truth being relative to the individual. You could tell them that, and they will look at you like, what is wrong with you? And you may have checkmated them in the philosophy class, but in the normal world, that will not work. So what do we tell the rest of us mere mortals, us mere human beings? Think with me about this for a second, okay? The person who says, who are you to judge them and say they are dangerous? I know them, they're a nice person. Why do you get to say that? Who are you to judge? What does that person have to say in order to say that? They have to, and hear this, they have to say the very thing that they say I shouldn't do or say, right? Which was judging, They had to make a determination upon that person to decide they're a nice person and therefore they should be included within the Christian circle, right? You see that? They're making a judgment call just like I am. One of us judges the teacher 
we are looking at as good, while the other judges that teacher as bad. And so we're doing the exact same thing, which is judging whether the teacher is a good teacher or a bad teacher. Except for the difference is I was just hypocritically told not to judge because, hey, buddy, who are you to judge who you don't have the cornerstone on truth? But evidently that person does because they know the person and they're a nice guy. They're making a judgment call and yet hypocritically telling me not to make a judgment call. Do you see how much our culture's way of thinking has invaded our church? I don't like relativism. It is stupid, unbiblical nonsense, to put it bluntly, and it hurts God's people and God's people's witness in a fallen world. Don't embrace relativism. That is the culture that we live in. It's relativistic. It's based upon the perspective of the individual. And people think it's like some kind of humble approach to say, the only truth is you can't know truth. Well, how do you know that truth? You see, it's a self-defeating argument. It doesn't make any sense. So the question isn't, who are you to judge, but what is the right judgment? That's the question we have to ask. Is that person teaching truth? Or are they teaching falsehood and leading people away from Christ? And if they are teaching falsehood, according to God's word, not my personal opinion, not my experience, but God's perfect inerrant word, I must then humbly, as verse 12 tells us we need to, I need to humbly warn others about their false teaching and them as a false teacher. Isaiah 24, 2 gives us a helpful verse to remind us what's at stake here. And it says this, And it shall be, as with the people, so with the priests. What that's saying is, as the priests lead, the people will follow. That's what it's saying. And so as a pastor, a few things in relation to this. As a pastor, why am I not out there on the front lines, spending all my time and effort fighting for political issues, fighting for social issues or other things like that? It's because I got bigger fish to fry way bigger fish to fry. I'm not merely trying to fight for better education, for better taxes, for better, uh, you know, you name it. As an as a ambassador of Jesus, I am fighting for the souls of men. That's, what, that's what's at stake here. Because there's so many people out there proclaiming to be priests of God who are actually, as Jesus tells us here in a few verses, they're missionaries of Satan. As Isaiah says, the people will follow their priests. They will follow their spiritual leaders. And if their spiritual leaders are leading them into falsehood, what they are really doing, Jesus says, is closing heaven's door, bam, right in their face and keeping them out. This leads us to our second point. We must go to war against false teachers because one, they conceal, but two, they close. Look at verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter it yourselves, nor allow those who would enter to go in. The reason these false teachers kept people out of the kingdom was ultimately why they weren't in it themselves. And we know that because over and over throughout Jesus' ministry, they were denying the truth of God and continually turning people away from it. How so? How did they do this? 
First, and we've seen this several times now, by denying the ultimate authority of God's word. And instead, they went to man's opinion. They went to the traditions of the day, the current understanding. They said, no, 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 you got to put these together if you're going to really see the whole truth. And Jesus is like, nope, not even a little bit. They denied the clear and obvious meaning of God's word and instead relied upon their man-made philosophies. Does that happen today? You better believe it. They also denied that Jesus was a messianic, was the messianic son of God, despite all of the evidence from the Bible, from the prophecies that pointed to him and all of the miraculous works and miraculous life that he lived right in front of their eyes. Does that happen today? Are we surrounded by teachers who deny the deity of Christ? Oh, absolutely. They'll say he's a God, not the God, which is no God at all. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the man-made philosophies problem, so we'll table that for today, but let's focus on the other two. <clears throat> How many cults are there out there that reject the deity of Christ? Probably too many to count is the reality. From Mormonism to Jehovah's Witnesses to Islam even, to the many, many other false faiths, we are just surrounded by them in our culture. And yet years back, I read a very disheartening truth, and it was this. It was the number one converts of Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism. You know where they come from? Baptist churches. Baptist churches. Am I right, Pastor Bob? You look like you're not, and I think you've heard that statistic too. That's heartbreaking. That's absolutely heartbreaking, which makes me wonder if anyone in those churches dared to not only teach the truth, but to call out dangerous false teachers and false teaching. How about false gospels? Do we have any of those in our day around us? Way too many to count. My goodness. We could go after the low-hanging fruit here of liberal Protestantism, Roman Catholicism, Islam, deviant evangelicalism, or legalistic conservative Christianity. Let's aim a little closer to home, though, shall we? How many evangelical churches present a gospel that is completely devoid of the bad news? I don't have anything on statistics. It seems like most, honestly, at this point, present a gospel, a good news message that is completely devoid of the bad news. How many churches present a gospel that includes the coming return of Jesus and the judgment of God's wrath that is shortly thereafter to follow? Not very many. How many churches, evangelical churches, don't talk about sin? And if they do even, they refer to it as mistakes, boo-boos, mess-ups. Anybody heard this before? All the time. Reminds me of my youth pastor days, going to conferences. All the time. It's so frustrating. And why? Because, as the scripture tells us, in the last day, preachers will come to do what? Tickle ears tell people what they want to say. And I get that temptation. I don't enjoy it at all having to look somebody in the face and offend them. And if you like doing that, you're a narcissist and you need help. But it's not fun. It's not something that's an enjoyable thing to do, but I do it. Why? Because I am to be a little Christ who imitates Christ and I do it for the glory of God and the loving good of that person. These people are too busy tickling ears. They'll go on and on and on about their life stories that culminate in some cherry-picked verse out of context that's basically a Christianese fortune cookie. 
That's what it is. It's out of context. It doesn't even fit with the passage, but it sounds good and feels good. And a lot of people can't tell that that's garbage preaching. That's demonic, satanic preaching. That's not gospel-driven, Christ-like preaching, church. It's not. I need to tell you this. If a pastor does not preach the bad news with the good news, they are not preaching the gospel of Jesus, and they are a false teacher who must be warned of and against. And as Paul says in Galatians, let them be accursed. He says, if I or an angel of God or any other come to you preaching a gospel different than the one delivered to us, let us be accursed. This is the gospel, the bad news. We are all born sinners who choose to sin and need a savior, which is the good news. And unless you repent and turn to Jesus by grace through faith, you will be damned for eternity for your sin. That's the whole gospel. And if you cherry pick it out to God loves you and has a perfect plan to your life, so just add Jesus, he'll make it better. You know, all your cows will never escape the pen. The horses will stay in. You'll never get sick. That is a false damning gospel. It's called the prosperity gospel, which I don't want to get started on because we don't have time for it. But it's a damning lie. If you get people to accept the good news, which simply gives them material benefits, they're not saved. They're not saved because they have not repented for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? That's the message we see over and over from John the Baptist to Jesus, okay? It's repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Instead of talking about the need for sinners to repent and turn to Jesus Christ for our righteousness, we hear about mistakes and we hear about shared brokenness. We hear phrases like it's okay to not be okay. Heard that one? And why? Because God loves you just the way you are. False, 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 false. All wrong, okay? He doesn't love us just the way we are. Let's clarify this. This is, think about why did Christ have to die for us miserable, sinful wretches? Because God couldn't love us just the way we were. He had to damn us just the way we were. That's the truth. He had to send Christ to live the life that we should have lived and die the death we deserved so that through that, his righteousness can be imputed into us so then he can love and accept us. Once we've turned in repentance to Jesus for salvation, at that point, we recognize, okay, it's no longer okay not to be okay right? Like you can come to Jesus with your sin. You don't have to clean yourself up. That's not what we mean when we say repent, okay? It's not get everything repented of, get all your, all your sinful ducks in a line, get them over here, do the right thing. And that, that's not what that means to repent, okay? What does repent mean? It means to turn, right? It's to change your mind. It's changing your mind, then turning and looking to Jesus, not your self-righteousness for salvation. So once you've done that, guess what? It's not okay to not be okay. It's kind of a tricksy sentence, but do you get what I'm saying? If you're sinning, stop. Fight it. Kill your sin. Practically speaking, Ephesians 4 talks about this. It's the put off, put on passage. Are you a thief? Put off stealing and start putting on giving. Are you a critical, grumbling, Israelite complainer? Put that off. How? By just zipping the lip? No. Put on encouraging. Start encouraging people around you. Look for the good in others. Not because you're trying to make up stuff that's not true, but start going to God and praying for them and asking him to change your attitude towards others. 
to give you a heart of thankfulness for those in your life who are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And look at all the blessings you have because of that. When you come to Christ, you do not have to clean yourself up. It's not what we're saying. You come as you are, but you come knowing and wanting to change from what you are because that is what it means to be a little Christ. That's the job. That's the task to follow Jesus, to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ, to imitate Christ. We could cut right to that. And yet we are surrounded by people who are slamming the door of salvation shut in people's faces, which is sad because those who have the saving message of salvation are often more scared of offending someone than they are of seeing that person's soul damned to hell for eternity. Fear of man, which is driven by what? Love of the applause of man. And while so many stand there unwilling to lift a finger, to even help someone at all enter the door of salvation, Satan's missionaries are hard at work not just shutting the door of salvation, but actively going out and recruiting those that they can bring with to be damned along with themselves to hell, which leads us to our final point. We must go to war against false teachers because one, they conceal, two, they close, and finally, they corrupt. Look with me at verse 14. I'll give you a second to find it. When I hear giggling, I'll know you figured it out. There we go. There is no verse 14 in most of your Bibles, right? <clears throat> That's why you can't find it. And why not? Is it because us modern Christians decide to go Thomas Jefferson on the Bible and just start ripping out things we didn't like? No. Here's why. It's because it's not in the earliest manuscripts. And that's most likely because some good, well-intentioned scribe was looking at probably Mark 12 or Luke 20, which is a cross-reference to our passage this morning, and they pulled the truths found in those two uh, passages, the content from those verses, and they said, you know, this fits really well here, it fits over there, let's put it here, that fits. And depending on which later manuscripts you look at, sometimes it comes later in, that, in the passage we're looking at, sometimes it comes earlier. The point is, though... Um, these were probably, this, this verse 14 here was probably an addition, okay? So we take it out, we don't look at it, we'll skip it, we'll eventually get to it someday when we get to Mark or Luke. Um, but just a reminder here, if you struggle with this, uh, chapters weren't added to the Bible until about 1100 AD. Do you know when verses were added? It's about 1500 AD, okay? So those are not inspired. They're not. They're man-made helpers, okay, to help us. You know, like some of you have the Bibles that has those little things on the side where it has like three books of the Bible names on the little, what is it called? The tabs, thank you. Those aren't inspired either. Okay, sorry if that's news to you, but they're not inspired. And so the chapters and verses aren't as well. Okay, so back in the early church, Josh and I were talking about this. They weren't going around saying, hey man, John 3.16. There was no John 3.16. There was the book of John. And they read the whole thing at one time. Preached through likely the whole thing at one time, which we probably should do sometime. But four weeks later, we'd be done with it. Look at verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. I like how one pastor I was reading this week put it. He said, these are not leaders, they are misleaders. It's a witty way to put it. They are not leaders, they are misleaders. 
And though they have much zeal, it is, as the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, he talks about these Jewish false leaders. He says, they have zeal without what? Without knowledge, without truth. And now you know why that saying says, the path to hell is laid with good intentions. Because the truth is, good intentions without knowledge is not actually good intentions. Jesus tells us, what is it? It's hellish intentions. That's what he's saying. That's exactly what they are. And so these people who have much zeal for God, but without knowledge are actually hell's missionaries because their zeal lacks the saving truth of the gospel. And if all they have is the good news of just, hey, just add Jesus to your life, as we we talked about earlier, that's not the gospel church. And yet how many times will Christians justify false teachers because, hey, just look at how much they care about people. Man, I met that guy. He is so loving and nice. He will give you the shirt off his back. You heard that before? All the time. You'll hear things like, look at all they do for people. You can't seriously tell me they're not serving God. Look at the love that just radiates off. Nope. Zeal without knowledge is hellish, is what Jesus says. Jesus tells us that they're not actually serving God, but serving Satan. That's what he's saying. And so it doesn't matter how many food shelves they run. It doesn't matter how many homeless people they aid. It doesn't even matter how many people they can raise their hands or say a quick prayer at the end of a service to add Jesus. If it does not include the whole gospel of Jesus Christ, it is false and damning teaching. Zeal does not count with God. Zeal with truth is what counts. And so good intentions don't matter. And that's even if I granted you the premise that good intentions can even exist outside of the new birth. I don't think they can. But the point here is good intentions do not matter unless they are accompanied with truth. For truth matters. The truth will set us free. And if a teacher is false about the truth, scripture tells us they are a false teacher and we are to avoid them. And we're to tell others to avoid them, which means we must mark them as a false teacher, warn people and say, watch out for so-and-so, they'll lead your soul to hell. And nobody wants to do that. We want to grow churches as fast as we can, build bigger buildings, bigger buildings, bigger buildings, all for the sake of the numbers game. Because we think numbers determine success before God. But hear me, church, it doesn't. Faithfulness is what is success before God. Satan has his missionaries and they are at work. And sadly, they are often working harder than we Christians are. And that brings much shame to us. And in these missionary endeavors, Satan absolutely will do as much good as he can if the ends result in the damnation of souls. Satan will run a soup kitchen You better believe he will. Satan will run a church that helps people's marriages. Satan will run, I mean, you fill in the good deed. He'll do that if that's what it takes to insert that slight lie that damns the soul to hell as they get their eyes off the true gospel. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, and no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So then it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds, which is damnation. 
damnation. The sad result of hell's missionaries is, as verse 15 says, they find converts who become twice as much a child of hell as they are. What's that talking about? Well, it's hyperbolic expression, but the truth is there's degrees of hell. There absolutely are. This idea that all sin is equal is only true and that all sin equally damns us and separates us from the love of God. But it's not true in terms of all sin being equal in judgment before God. There's degrees of hell. There's numerous passages we don't have time to look at. James 3, 1 says, not many of you should teach for we who teach will be held to a stricture judgment. So there's a judgment even for us as Christians. And when it comes to non-Christians, there's degrees of judgment for them as well. Another thing to notice here, this sermon we find here in Matthew 23, do you realize that this is Jesus's final sermon? He is hours away from going to the cross. In Matthew chapter five, in five, that's where we found his first sermon, which was the Sermon on the Mount. And in that passage, he talks about what it takes to be blessed. And interestingly enough, the contrast couldn't be more clear. Here in his final sermon, is he talking about what it takes to be blessed? No, he's talking about what it takes to be cursed, to have a woe of judgment pronounced upon you. And so if Jesus his final message before going to the cross wasn't talking about loving one another. It wasn't talking about caring for one another. It wasn't talking about serving one another. No, he spent his final sermon warning people about false teachers and he did it by name. In fact, this this is totally just in their face. They were right there. He didn't shy back and wait till they went away and be like, all right, come here, let me talk about them. No, he's like, "These these are agents of Satan. And their end will be their destruction in hell. And why did he do this? Because Jesus was unloving? Because he hated people? No. He, in Luke's, I think it's Luke's gospel, he talks about, before all this, he goes, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wish to gather you like a hen gathers its chicks. He had great anguish over this, which that's really what's baked into this pronouncement of woe. It's a, it's a determination of damnation and judgment, but also with a heavy heart attached to it. And yet he says this because it's an essential part of the gospel. And if we are going to lovingly bring that gospel to others, we are going to have to call out false teaching and false teachers by name. We must be little Christ. We must follow in his footsteps and bring the gospel to a world that's lost in darkness which means calling out error in those who preach it. Do you realize that every single one of us here is a Christian? Not because we were so smart to pick up a Bible ourselves, one that we uh, put together, that we copied ourselves for 2,000 years and you know picked it up and read. No, it's we are a Christian because somebody brought us the good news of salvation. Every single person here, I don't care who you are, you are the benefit of somebody who copied the Bible, who copied the Bible, who copied the Bible. So we have it today and somebody preached it, somebody showed you it. And so none of us are self-made Christians. And so whether you were raised by imperfect parents, which you certainly were, or raised in an imperfect church that preached the gospel, be humbly thankful. Be humbly thankful. You are not a self-made Christian which means you're no better than anybody else, which includes the lost. Another thing here, if you're a part of our church here at Eagle's Nest, continue recognizing that you are in a very, very imperfect church with a very, very, very imperfect pastor. You absolutely are. 
but be thankful that by God's grace you are in a church where you do hear the gospel message of salvation, the whole gospel, the good news with the bad news. You aren't being led into damning error, but into life-saving truth. So pray that that will continue. Pray that I will remain fast and hold fast to the truth regardless of how many boos I get. And I get boos for it, okay? So pray for consistency, for perseverance, but also be thankful for what God has given you. And out of your thanks, join with us as we endeavor to follow our great master's commission, which comes from Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And know this, this is our great comfort. Jesus says, behold, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. He's with us. He's for us. And so let's live our lives to serve him by God's grace for the glory of God and for the good of others. Let us pray. Father, these are some hard truths today. And so, Lord, I ask that you would use these truths in the live, lives of your people, that we would not shy back from them, that we would not follow any man-made philosophies, but that we would see the clear and obvious written word as you've given us and adhere to it. We pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.